there my name is noah and i'm here alongside my co-hosts m hi and rob hey there we are the hosts of fax machine a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything but especially the things that make them laugh we are very excited to be joined by anna klompen an evolutionary biologist studying jellyfish venoms welcome thank you (laughs) anna got in touch with us initially because she listened to our sixth episode do animals suck uh, and had some complaints about Rob's portrayal of jellyfish as almost Bond villain-esque nuclear power plant saboteurs, like in, <laughs> intent on gunking up the world's precious water intake valves, uh, and at one point causing the shutdown of a reactor that supplies 10% of Sweden's power. Why was Rob's take so disastrously wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will say, so yeah, jellyfish do cause issues like, uh, like of course, what happened in Sweden and um, sinking uh, ships like the USS Reagan, I believe, was um, at least not sunk, but uh, was completely clogged by jellyfish. So no doubt they cause problems both for people and uh, other animals when they bloom probably too prolifically. But the, the thing that I took... Uh, the most umbrage, I suppose, about <laughs> the whole thing was this portrayal that all jellyfish are terrible. They can all sting you. They're all going to cause these problems. And fine, a lot of them uh, actually are not uh, as problematic as we think. So the the group that jellyfish are in, in called the Cnidarians, um, includes sea anemones and corals. Uh, as well as these parasitic jellyfish that most people don't know about. And the actual group of jellyfish, um, there's probably about 4,000 species, is my guess now. Um, The total phylum, there's about 13,000. And off the top of my head, just knowing what I do about jellyfish venoms, I would guess less than 60 can really hurt you. Um, And that's a very broad guess of those about 4,000. Most of them are too small to hurt you. And that's actually a lot of what I study are jellies that are just too small to be relevant to really anyone except for people interested in teeny tiny little stingy things. Um, (laughs) But they do, they they can, uh, there have been reports, jellyfish can kill you. There are some jellies with really, really powerful venoms, but they're in pretty specific places. They're seasonal most jellyfish are wonderful, adorable little critters uh, that I have uh, great affection for. And hopefully by the end, maybe you'll have a little affection for at least one of them that I'll talk about later. <laughs> I suspect we will. And I'm glad that you're here to set the record straight uh, and save the reputations of these Nidarians. Uh, you're their Nido in shining armor. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Got so many more of these. <laughs> Um, anyway, so Anna, you do a lot of science communication, uh, and I understand that as someone who studies jellyfish and their stings, there's one thing in particular that you try to communicate to anyone who will listen. What is that? Yes, absolutely. And especially now at the end of summer, and that is do not, do not, please do not pee on a jellyfish sting. 
<laughs> I I do not where I don't know where this originally came from. I know that it was probably made famous on Friends. To be clear, it's because oh. it offends the jellyfish's sensibilities, right? Oh, That's, absolutely. It's just inappropriate. <laughs> they are quite delicate. That was good, good hard work they put into stinging you, and then you just go and pee on the thing. In in terms of offending jellyfish, urine is quite a lot like Rob. <laughs> well, I I stand by my stance on jellyfish, uh, but as a, as a child of the Enlightenment, I I am willing to be persuaded. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> Grandchild of the Enlightenment. <laughs> um, but this, uh, this is a very important message because this mm. is like, if anybody knows one thing about jellyfish, I feel like it's that you should pee on it if it's if you get stung. That's like the thing people will immediately quote to you. Yeah, and, that's, and I hear it a lot, um, obviously doing a, a lot of work with young kids too. That's something very appealing to this idea of if you have to pee on a jellyfish sting. So the, the issue is, um, so at best case scenario, peeing on a sting is going to do nothing um, other than make you feel, uh, depending if it's you or a friend or a stranger, <laughs> make you feel a little strange. Um, but the, the issue can be is that for uh, jellyfish stings, often what happens is the tentacles um, actually rip off and the stinging cells, these little tiny structures that inject the venom, are usually some of them are still intact and they're often still on your skin. So if you pee on them, uh, what's going to happen is the pressure of you peeing on them mechanically will make those stinging cells fire. (laughs) And the fact that urine is mostly fresh water um, will actually osmotically cause those stinging cells to fire. So in my lab, um, when I isolate stinging cells from my animals, I am actually using both uh, fresh water and mechanical like shaking essentially a bead beater to mm. fire stinging cells so when you're peeing on someone the, the worst case scenario is it's going to hurt much much worse and now you've peed into potentially an open-esque wound yeah. so many things uh wrong right you're in trouble absolutely i was waiting (laughs) i'm sorry no that was that was perfect yeah so yeah please don't pee on a jellyfish sting well anna thank you so much for all you do to bring this very important message to the masses Uh, and to help you get your message across we're gonna play a little game called should you pee on it (laughs) okay amazing Here's scenario number one. You are walking along the beach and you accidentally step on a jellyfish with a bare foot. The question is, should you pee on it? Um, Ooh. How big is it? Man. <laughs> that is not relevant. The answer is you should not pee on it. <laughs> okay, so maybe you'll do better on the next okay, one. Scenario okay, number two. All right. You're out for a swim in your local freshwater quarry and you feel a stinging sensation on your leg. Should you pee on it? Well, we don't know if it's jellyfish at this point. Trick question. Let's go to our... <laughs> like, you, you can use your call an expert option. <laughs> Lifeline. Okay, that's... Bring, bring. <laughs> bring, bring. And sh- just yeah, shake no, yeah. no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't pee on it. There are freshwater jellyfish, and you should not pee on them. Mm. Or a sting from them. 
and it and I learned from Anna that they happen to be found a lot of the time in freshwater quarries. They are, right. yeah. Hmm. We we raise them in our lab, actually. Yeah, they're an invasive oh, nice. freshwater jellyfish. So there are many reasons why you should not <laughs> pee on it in this particular scenario. <laughs> All right, final scenario. Let's see how you feel about this. This one's for Anna directly because we need to go straight to the expert on this one. It's complicated. You were stung on the ankle by a jellyfish while standing knee deep in the ocean. You scamper back to the beach, where you accidentally step into a pool of lighter fluid and then trip backwards over a campfire, setting your lower leg ablaze. My question, do you, should you pee on it? Now, to be clear, the the leg that was stung is the same that's now on fire. Ah, ah, clever thinking. No. Uh, So? It's (laughs) on... All right, let's say yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or you, both both legs are on well, fire. Both, both okay. scenarios, I want to know. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Give me the, uh, the combination of all of them. Wow, I wonder, I don't think anyone's tried burning tentacles to see if it makes it fire. So I could not say if that's going to... I, I would... I would <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, you worse. have it from Anna Klompen, expert on jellyfish stings. There is one scenario where you can pee on your leg, and it's if you get first stung and then it catches on fire. Pee on it. This is some hot Amazing. takes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that one was a thinker. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like we really cleared that up, and uh, people will get the message now. Um but moving right along, in every episode of Fax Machine, each of us shares one fascinating fact, along with the incredible story behind it. And finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is Venom, a secretion containing one or more toxins produced by an animal and delivered through a bite, sting, or other direct delivery mechanism. So let's dive in amongst the jellyfish and find out why, to paraphrase Belinda Carlisle, have Venom is a place on Earth. <laughs> M, take it away. Why, thank you very much. So this week, I learned, honestly, just a lot about animals that have adaptations to venom that make them immune to it. I'm not going to do like a pithy fact thing because this is just really cool and wild and I want to get straight into it. So let's go. (laughs) Okay. So in a lot of instances, mammals that develop immunity to venom uh, do so because they feast on venomous prey. Um, And the immunity in that case is like an evolutionary fitness advantage and that animals with it have their pick of more sources of nutrition, um, which then pays out dividends in their growth and reproduction and also helps them to avoid starving when non-venomous prey is scarce. Um, Plus, venomous animals typically aren't all that threatening if you take the venomous kind of bit of them away. So, for example, when you think of snakes, like unless they're constrictors, ultimately without their venom, they're just big sausages with a razor blade on one end. (laughs) That's that's not a good thing. (laughs) I I don't want that. But it's not as bad as like having to tackle, I don't know, some kind of like scrappy, clawy, like, you know, angry animal. But really interesting, too, is that sort of like the acquisition of this immunity to venom um, is part of this kind of like co-evolutionary arms race that happens between the anti-venomous, or I should say, the venom-immune mammals and their venomous prey. Um, So the concept of it is referred to as reciprocal selection. And basically, as venomous prey evolve to become more venomous, um, so like individuals of that species will gain mutations that then make them more venomous, and then they survive and reproduce, and those 
those traits carry forward. Um, their predators that develop immunity then have to kind of like develop even better immunity as the venom becomes more toxic and more potent. So this sort of occurs back and forth, back and forth as these two animals basically coexist in the same habitat. Um, and it's led to a lot of really kind of creative adaptations um, on the part of the mammals that develop immunity. So for example, like snakes are often immune to snake venom. Um, of course, their own venom, so they don't like kill themselves while they're eating or during foreplay. But also, <laughs> <laughs> but also sometimes uh, to other snakes, because snakes can actually eat each other and have predator-prey relationships. Um, and that is called ophiophagy, in case you were wondering, which I really doubt that you were. Um, but these defenses that can arise um, against venom can range from like surface or tissue adaptations. So for example, like honey badgers have skin that's loose and thick um, and basically difficult for fangs to actually latch into. Um, leatherback turtles have an esophagus that's really thickly lined as well and allows them, yeah, allows them to eat jellyfish. Also, I found as I was reading, <laughs> they're lined with backward spines to help them keep their prey like going down their throats which is just so fucking metal had to say it <laughs> kind of like the sarlacc pit in star wars <laughs> which, which i just oh remembered was, was also Wait. mentioned no so serious so one of the one of the one of the sources i was reading for this fact like like actually likened that to a sarlacc pit and i was like what the hell is a sarlacc pit so thank you for oh. clarifying <laughs> i am not a star wars person <laughs> sorry to say the first time i saw like the turtle uh, esophagus knowing I was like why do they need that for jellyfish jellyfish like rip themselves <laughs> in corners you don't need all those spines but I'm not here to tell turtles what to do yeah. <laughs> I, wanna, I really want to put that They're on a shirt <laughs> I'm not here to tell turtles what to do with their lives but I'm here to tell you don't pee on jellyfish but things. do not pee on jellyfish yeah I that's need for the that back of the t-shirt. shirt <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it. Uh. I, I'm here for this. <laughs> but some of these adaptations also occur at like the cellular and molecular level. And obviously, well, I should say for obvious reasons, these are the ones that I think are especially cool. So some examples of these kind of more microscopic uh, adaptations, or I should say uh, a very well-known and nasty-ass one, uh, would be in the <laughs> honey badger, um, which evolved to be impervious to cobra bites, among other snakes. I won't spend too much time on these guys because you can learn much more than what I can tell you from a certain YouTube video. Um, but essentially, alpha neurotoxins and cobra venom uh, bind to a type of neuroreceptor in uh, muscles and actually cause paralysis, which then um, in their victims actually causes them to stop breathing. Um, but badgers, over this sort of coevolution, uh, gained a mutation to the receptor that actually then blocks this interaction between uh, the venom and the receptor. Um, and other animals like mongooses and hedgehogs, um, and even pigs, but like wild pigs, not the ones that are in the barnyard, um, also gained resistance to venom in this same kind of way. Um, but I wanted to highlight one animal that sort of took this idea of like at the cellular level, um, basically thwarting venom uh, a step further. And the animal that did this is called the grasshopper mouse. So if you have any kind of device with Google in front of you, I encourage you to look them up because they are so freaking cute. They're just little like fluffy, tiny little mice that are like <laughs> five to six inches long from head to tail. Um, they defend their territory by in quotes from Wikipedia, howling like a small wolf, which... 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Like these have all the makings of a critter that I'm just in love with. But also. Wear mouse. <laughs> yes. But also they are resistant uh, to the venom of bark scorpions. So uh, these guys live in the U.S. and Mexico. And in the southwestern U.S., uh, bark scorpions are basically like the primary constituent of their diets because there are just a lot of them around down there. Um, and as a consequence of this, grasshopper mice and bark scorpions have been engaged in this sort of like co-evolutionary arms race um, for ages. So over the course of this arms race, mice not only maintain their immunity to the bark scorpion venom, um, but they also changed in kind of like an extra way, like to really stick it to them, in my opinion. Um, their brains actually convert the bark scorpion venom into painkiller. So they don't, they don't even feel oh, wow. when they're being bitten. And they're oh. just kind of like, cool, totally good, man. I'm going to eat you. And I don't even care what you're trying to do. <laughs> so, and it's actually, it's the way that it happened is really neat. So basically, uh, it was found these grasshopper mice gained mutations that allowed the venom to shut down nociceptors, which are a specialized kind of neuron that senses painful stimuli like heat or chemical burns, um, and then conveys that or, and then converts that into a pain signal um, and conveys it to the central nervous system. So these mutations affect two sodium channels on the surface of these cells. Um, and what these do is actually just let sodium ions into the cells to generate the electrical action potential that neurons use to signal and fire to each other. Um, but this mutation actually gives these cells an extra amino acid that allows the venom to bind to the sodium channel, which it can't do otherwise. Like this mutation just enables this interaction to happen. Um, and that interaction then blocks the activity of the channel and then blocks the cells from being activated oh, wow. and conveying pain signals. It's just, it's a crazy like gain of function bonkers thing. It, it um, sounds a little bit like um, when you were, especially when you said like that the mice brains are reactive to it. Uh, have you seen these stories of dolphins that will like catch a puffer fish and then pass it back and forth because the toxins get them like a little bit high. Like a beach ball? <laughs> yeah. They're just like, here, take yeah, this. Like a beach ball that got you high. Yeah. If bombs were shaped like beach balls, then yes, exactly. <laughs> that, I have not heard of that, but that's fantastic. Yeah. And it's like, um, it's, it's a very oh, yeah, human so. kind of thing, but it's just like, oh, this feels all right. I'm just going to chew on this poisonous fish for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then just lob it over to my bud Brad here. Yeah. Hey, man, take a hit of this. And it's just, it's just a puffer fish. That's amazing. Um, but, on, uh, but on that train, though, there are lots of animals that actually uh, repurpose like venom or poison um, in this sort of, not necessarily in kind of like a just making themselves not feel it as much way, but actually to repurpose it against predators. Um, so there's one kind of bird called the hooded uh, pitahui, which it's spelled as patui, and it's not pronounced that way. <laughs> And it positively yeah. breaks my heart, but it's the Pitahui. <laughs> um, but these guys are endemic to New Guinea, and they have high levels of a neurotoxic compound called Batraxitocin um, in its skin and also its feathers, so just totally on the surface of the thing. And it actually gains this from consuming beetles that have this compound. Uh. Yeah. Um, and it, like, it, it consumes them and then can like, excrete them, or it like, wipes them all over itself? It, no, it can excrete them. Wow. Um, and actually, I'm not, I didn't see whether there was research kind of like looking into how this tissue distribution happens, but very interestingly, it's at its highest concentrations, like on the surfaces of the bird. 
like in its internal organs, it's still there, but in more trace amounts. So it seems like it was very purposefully just kind of like dispersed, like for outer protection, um, which was really <laughs> neat. Um, and then another animal that I wanted to highlight in this vein uh, is the nudibranch. Nudibranch. I knew I was going to screw it up. Nudibranch. But again, it's not nudibranch. And again, its name is not nearly as entertainingly pronounced as it otherwise could be. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> But well, we can we can establish like a fax machine style guide where it's like <gasps> if if there's an oh animal who's, whose name could be pronounced in a funnier way, you have to pronounce it that way. So from uh. now on, it's the nudie branch. Man, see, I was hoping that would extend to like all of the instances in which I've mispronounced anything on this podcast because that would be a volume by now. Only, only if you pronounce it the funniest possible way. Yeah. I think Ooh, that should also okay. apply to all French people we've ever mentioned. <laughs> yes. It's two language editions <laughs> for this compendium. Um, but yeah, so these guys are like these uber colorful sea slugs, also worth a Google. They're just like... A beautiful rainbow spectrum of like funkiness um and they eat sea anemones whose tentacles are covered in stinging cells called nematocysts and what's crazy is that they can safely ingest nematocysts um in a way similar to the sea turtles in that like their esophagus is kind of coated um in a sort of protective layer of like tissue um but they can also recycle these stinging cells from their digestive from their digestive tract, um, and actually transport them into like the fleshy sort of stalks that stick out of their backs. Um, and then these stalks will then actually fire these cells at predators to sting them. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. again, they'll just like take this this venom and like repurpose it somewhere else on their bodies, even, which is just mind blowing. And actually, I didn't really look into like how this transport happens, but like Noah, as resident vesicle transport dude, like I wish I had looked into it more, and then you could like <laughs> offer stuff on that. But anyways. It's all very cool. Um, and just to say, too, that as we learn more about how animals uh, adapt to gain immunity to venom, um, this could also help in our search for anti-venoms. Um, so, for example, we have known for a while um, that opossums actually have, like, a peptide or a small protein in their blood that gives them immunity to snake venom as well. Um, and a couple of years ago, years ago, work actually began to generate, like, a synthetic um, sort of lab-made version of this protein um, to maybe be used for therapeutic uses to treat people who have snake bites. So, Can I say something about the, the yeah. nudibranchs? Sure. What uh, what is that? A nudie branch? A nudie branch. That? I'm so sorry. Yeah, a nudie branch. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> nudie branch. We can even go. I was going to talk the, the specific one, the blue dragon nudie branch. Um, very beautiful one that actually eats uh, the tentacles from Portuguese man of war. So highly, highly Ooh. toxic. Ooh. And I don't remember where I read it. Um, and it probably wasn't a paper. Very sadly, but I've. Uh, somewhere I read that they are actually selective about the types of stinging cells they take. So there's different types and assuming, and some are much larger than others. And assumingly, um, new to branches actually will selectively pick the largest stinging cells and only the largest to put onto themselves. And in some sense then could be in terms of size more, uh, toxic than even just the Portuguese man of war, um, because they're being so selective. Oh, Wow. I see. So like to like to surface area. <laughs> yeah. Like the yeah, the amount technically... of Yeah, yeah. And I I I'm with actually if no one's going to study this eventually I would like to study this cuz I think that is <laughs> the cool. selective ability is crazy enough but that they can 
Yeah. Do they do they just detach the stinging cell, or do they take the whole? Because it's a uh, it's a colonial organism, right? Do they take the whole like living thing and stick it on their back? Oh no, they only eat. Um, so yeah, for for Portuguese man of war, the the tentacles are one type. Um, I think they eat a couple times, but one type of polyp on there. So it's a community of polyps mm. is uh, just mostly mostly for capturing prey. So it's full of these stinging cells, and I think they eat mostly those tentacles, and then maybe a little bit of the reproductive polyps too, because there's a lot of energy there. Wow. And they take, well, ingest only intact. They don't seem, they seem to avoid, I think, or otherwise just don't consume fired stinging cells. They only take intact ones, wow. move it onto, yeah, those little um, nudibranches on on the back of the nudibranch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to cut out the nice. part where we decided to call it like that. <laughs> <laughs> no explanation. Uh, Anna, I think it's called nudibranch. <laughs> <laughs> So this week I learned for certain types of cancer, your best bet might be snails. Uh, Okay. And so go on. Yeah. And so a couple caveats here. One is I've actually, uh, I've been adjacent to this fact for a little while, which I'll explain in a second. Um, The other thing I just want to bring up is um, since this is an audio format, you couldn't see that every time Emily named uh a different species of animal that i had perhaps never heard of or studied uh anna just nodded sagely yeah. like yep, that is a that is a venomous animal i know about so i'm entering this fact uh definitely the person who knows the second most about it in this conversation uh but uh so what, what i'm really going to talk to you about is the research of one lab um uh kind of uh, at the helm of which is uh dr mandy holford uh, who is a really incredible scientist uh, whose whose lab is kind of it has its fingers in so many different fields. It's actually kind of amazing. Uh, and who, for me, uh, the the thing that I have kind of the most in common with her is not being a great scientist or like an amazing world <laughs> explorer, but but she's actually taken her research and turned it into a not just one children's game, but a a children's game company. Um, and so this is what lays ahead of us in this fact is killer snails, cancer, and children's games. Um, so let's do this. <laughs> One hell of a kid's birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, th- this story, I guess you could say this story starts, um, evolutionarily, um, somewhere in the Indian ocean. Uh, and so there's a species of snails, uh, called uh, Terribridae, uh, but they are, they're kind of, you've probably seen these, like the shells are, are very recognizable. They're long, thin, circular shells. They're actually called auger snails because they look like a screw or an auger, um, within which live uh, a tiny gastropod snail uh, who just kind of lives his left, uh, lives his best life from the bottom of the ocean. Uh, they are typically carnivorous. I think they eat worms. There are incredible videos of some of the bigger ones just gobbling a whole fish um (laughs) which is just wonderful to watch um and so these snails are they are poisonous they are actually they're venomous they they attack they stun their prey with a series of venoms and then they just consume them so um the lab of dr holford or i should say mandy holford started looking out into this uh species of snail and actually uh, or not species, this this whole family of snails. 
which includes, I believe, um, 400 or so species and, and, and dozens of genera. And because of the work she does with their venom, has been able to classify them into clades and really was the person who organized this entire uh, family of organisms. So um, she, in, in a way, she's a, a very accomplished taxonomist uh, in a way that a lot of scientists who work in New York City are not because um, her lab is actually based at Hunter College in New York. Oh, also, now would probably be a good time to say um, that Mandy Holford is associated with the company that I work for in that she is a, I believe she's a board member of Biobus, but she's been a consultant for Biobus for several years uh, and has actually been consulting with me on a project that some of my interns made about a virus card game. Um, and so, Ooh. yeah, so she is, the, she has been many people's research mentor uh, but she, she's sort of my virus card game mentor at the moment. <laughs> but so th this is kind of the first branch of her lab. So individuals go out, collect deadly killer snails um, in hopefully gloved hands, put them into nets in like the beautiful Indian Ocean. The pictures from the boats are just awe-inspiring and make me really jealous that you could have done this for grad school <laughs> there, are, there are pros and cons to the work i mean you, know, you get to be in the indian ocean you have to touch very toxic snails <laughs> you they pay for your scuba license i mean like there's a it's a lot yeah. going for it um but so i i thought this was amazing that like if, if this was the end of the story i already would have been pretty sold on this uh as just like a great career path yeah um but then then take the fact that these snails produce hundreds of different toxins. Um, and so you can look at all the proteins in these toxins. And what Mandy does is actually sequences the, the genes for the proteins, looks at their makeup, and then does screens. And so um, a brief word on, on kind of like protein or peptide screening, uh, you can take these individual bits of protein and just basically drop them on cells in a dish and see how those cells respond. So we know that these toxins are supposed to do something to cells, right? They stun, um, if not outright kill, prey and humans. So they're, they're going to do something to mess up a cell. And the question that Mandy kind of set out to answer was, are any of these going to be really good at killing, say, liver cancer cells? And by like really fortuitous uh, studying and excellent science, uh, Mandy came across this peptide called TV1, which is uh, basically terabrid venom protein one. And what it what it does is uh, it actually gets into like sort of like what Emily was saying, it, it gets into channels. Um, and this is how it affects uh, nerve cells. And it actually blocks nociceptors um, and gets that stunning effect. Uh, but the channels that it targets are overexpressed in liver cancer cells. And so it has a highly selective effect on blocking the growth of liver cancers. Um, and that is just nice. kind of, yeah, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just a really incredible and kind of inexplicable convergence of evolution, like why this particular channel was utilized, uh, kind of pressured into being in, in two different systems in this way. Um, and it's just such an incredible find. And so... I believe her work has identified a few toxins that, that are potential drug candidates in this way, but one of them um, has actually been kind of, uh, has been approved by the FDA. So ziconotide is the, the brand name of this TV1 toxin. So it's literally a toxin from a killer snail, uh, which in any other circumstance would be something you don't want. Uh, but 
in the case of liver cancer, it's just so specific or it, it's so much more specific to cancerous cells that it can be used as a, a, a efficacious treatment to abate cancer. Um, and so, again, if this was the end of the story, I would have been thrilled with this. <laughs> That's super cool that you can you can go diving in the Indian Ocean and then be like, I'm curing cancer. Um, so that's awesome. But then, well, do just... they, the question is, so the question is how do they like in cancer patients, do they just like <laughs> pick up a snail and plop yeah. it down on them or what are the, what's the administration? So, uh, some of them are actually, uh, uh, like species on a watch list. So to be fair, they have, when you walk into like, say Sloan Kettering, they will fly you to the Indian ocean and get you your scuba license. And you go down. <laughs> To treat your cancer, so it's. I, you... <laughs> um, obviously, I'm kidding though. So yeah. it's a drug. They yeah. just get a drug. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, the 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 third part, and and for me, just the absolute like the this is dropping the hammer on all other scientists. Um, <laughs> is this research? <laughs> I know. Sorry. Well, you, it's not too late for you guys. All of you can it's can do late. this. You can. <laughs> You can up your game to this level. Um, but but Mandy's research was so compelling and so interesting. And just it, it tells a story itself, right? It's just such an interesting story um, that she was able to kind of sit down with, uh, with a few individuals who she met and founded a company called Killer Snails, Inc. Um, and I could tell you about Killer Snails, Inc., uh, but you know who else could tell you about Killer Snails Inc? Who? The people at Forbes magazine, uh, who noted it as one of like the the upstart businesses of the last twenty years, um, and so it Killer upstart Snails startups. is incredible. Upstart startups. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Forbes did an entire write up on this business, which raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter, uh, which was founded by Mandy Halford. Um, and and two other people who have kind of incredible uh, backgrounds in education. So there's uh, Jessica Okoa Hendricks, who I've actually emailed, and she's in a wow. Forbes article. So I'm like second degree famous. You wait, you have emailed, or yeah, there, y'all, there's like you both have emailed each other. There's like a chain in which I was like, okay. dear Jessica, and she wrote back to me about something. Wow. So like, wow, yeah, this is like big big news. I remember a couple episodes ago you bragged about your close personal person you follow on twitter yes <laughs> Catherine Wu. <laughs> one of my my top three science writer friends at the new york times who i've never met but uh yeah <laughs> but uh this team founded the company they made the killer snails game it's an educational game that's been distributed to schools um and from that they realized like this is a great platform to get kids interested in in different types of science and so their second game was one called biome builder which Yours truly beta tested before it went out to the public. I'm, nice. I'm super nice. pumped about this, but yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a game that teaches about ecosystems, apex predators, kind of levels of predation and how they fit in. Uh, and so uh, this is this is just kind of at this point, it's just basically a love letter to Mandy Halford because I think she's so cool. <laughs> um, I, I will co-sign that love letter yeah. to her as well. If every scientist could do this, if every scientist could travel the world find amazing research, like define whole clades of animals and then make it accessible to children. Like we wouldn't have a crisis in science communication the way that I feel we sometimes do. So, um, yeah. So this fact was like, again, close to me personally, which is why I I like to talk about it and, and really like 
like amplify this awesome work that's being done. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I will never look at a venomous oceanic creature the same way again. Uh, so my fact is that upside down jellyfish can sting you without touching you, basically by sneezing on you. <laughs> yeah. Right now, sneezing on people is quite a good way to endanger them. So this is very topical. This, this is the uh, this jellyfish is so ahead of the game on the danger. Yeah. I will say some of the cutest things that a jellyfish can do. I will say so. Moon jellyfish have those long little oral arms. Um, sometimes my moon jellies will literally take this arm and then wipe it across the bottom part of them like they're <laughs> mouth. And every time they do, I try and get a movie and I just cannot get it yet, but it is so, I love it so much. Um, yeah, so upside down jellyfish, I should note. So these are, um, really beautiful jellies that if, uh, you can find them all across the world, uh, in tropical areas, so mangrove and other kind of shallow water areas. Um, and they quite literally look like which um, most people think a normal jellyfish. So the bell on top um, and then frilly bits hanging down. Um, uh, in this case, they're called oral arms and little pieces of um, kind of fluffier looking stuff than a tentacle. But they just sit on the bottom. They're very lazy um, in that way is that they don't swim around. They just sit oral arms facing up. And the reason they do this is because they actually have a symbiotic algae that live in their tentacles. So what they're doing um, is in these kind of shallower waters, they're actually sunbaking, but also eating. So they get some, at least nutrition, uh, and some resources from these symbiotic algae, but they still need to eat. And they also need to deter predators. Did you say sunbaking? Sunbaking, sunbathing. I probably did say sunbaking. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I was like, kind of meant sunbathing. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're, su- they're sunning themselves. Yeah, sorry. Okay. I was like, oh, this must be a cool new thing I've never heard of. Yeah, Yeah, sunbathing. No, that was just me Uh, trying to get the words out. Um, No, no, it's all good. Um, So these jellies, um, they can be like a few inches kind of uh, in diameter in terms of their bell or up to um, a foot about. So and often you'll see them. Uh, in places where there's a lot of diving or snorkeling, and there'll be groups of them, and there'll be all different shades of browns, blues, greens. They're very beautiful. Um, But what many people know, or at least there's in many guides, um, if you do go snorkeling or um, scuba diving near these animals, uh, is that if you swim over top of them, beautiful image of all these little jellyfish kind of pulsing uh, on the sand, is you might start feeling a stinging sensation. Uh, you haven't touched the jellies for any reason, um, but uh, any exposed skin starts feeling a little tingly, and the longer you spend there, the more irritated you become. So this is a phenomenon that was called stinging water, or toxic water. Uh, was pretty well known uh, in tour guides for these areas, um, meant kind of uh, known locally, at least, with, with these jellies, and by Aquarists. Um, but turns out nobody knew really what was happening. Um, The other thing that at least upside-down jellyfish have been studied for a few hundred years, what was known is that they do release mucus. Within the water, they kind of release this mucus, um, but it doesn't really detach. It's almost like a net. So assumingly, the idea was they're releasing this mucus, catching all these little bits of zooplankton, and then um, pulling it back across themselves. And unlike some other jellies, which have one hole that serves as both a mouth and an anus or a manus, 
Yeah. Um, as has been coined, of course. No, really? Uh, these ki- yes, a manus, of course. For someone who doesn't know, that's manusplaining. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You get that in toxin masculinity. <laughs> well, these minute jellies don't have a manus. Um, they actually, all those frilly bits in the middle are actually many tiny mouths. So these have many different mouths and they're more or less filter feeding really small kind of bits of food um, in order to eat. So the assumption was they catch this food in this mucus. They kind of wipe the mucus over themselves and pick out the bits <laughs> of food that are in there. And if a fish happens to swim by and wants to give the jelly a little nibble, they'll release this mucus and the fish um, will be upset and swim away. Hopefully is, is the goal, um, at least what's been deserved, observed in these before. But again, no one had really figured out what was in this mucus that was making it sting. Um, The assumption was there was bits of stinging cells in there, but the phenomenon was so common um, and sometimes very intense. Um, Not enough to really hurt you, but at least enough to make you get out of the water. So uh, what a group of uh, jellyfish researchers that included aquarists, um, uh, molecular biologists, uh, and actually some high school interns, now undergrads, and one of them now a graduate student, um, all decided to look at this mucus um, uh, under the microscope. And we found these weird uh, spots, these white, bumpy little uh, structures that were moving. And there were hundreds of these within the mucus. And we thought, oh, that's very strange. Maybe this is something that's in the tank. Um, since we keep them with other animals, um, or this is just some other weird coincidence. Could not find any other real mention of these uh, kind of popcorn-like structures, except from three potential, uh, three papers that potentially at least gave us some idea. So one was from uh, uh, 1908 uh, by a very well-known jellyfish biologist that actually said that they found these weird kind of bumpy structures in um, upside down jellyfish, but they couldn't possibly from, be from this jellyfish. They were probably just parasites. <laughs> then there were two other studies um, uh, in the 1930s and the 1990s that actually drew pictures. Uh, one of them, at least, drew a picture of these structures. Still didn't really know what they were, but they were assumed to be maybe as some sort of defense or whatnot. But they were just these weird bumpy structures. Okay, cool. So we decided to look at them a little bit more closely and turns out they're little balls of stinging cells. Um, Well-organized balls of stinging cells, um, a specific kind of stinging cell called an O-isoriza. They just look like spheres um, and they had little algae in them. And it seemed to be these little packets of stinging uh, like bombs, essentially, that they were releasing into the mucus. Like, this is a very strange thing. Um, but we had seen before in this other jellyfish, not related at all, actually a sea anemone. Um, hmm. The sea anemones called the Matastella, the starlet sea anemone, actually have packets of stinging cells that they keep in their bodies um, where they digest food. And they move these things around to digest food and also might release them when they release their eggs as some sort of protection. So we thought that's super weird that these things that have probably split 500 plus million years ago have these very same kind of stinging cell packets. Uh, so those structures in nematostella were called nematosomes. These structures are called cassiosomes for these cassiopeia. And mm. it turns out, 
Uh, yes. And so it turns out um, these uh, little packets not only move and can move for up to 10 days, um, uh, either in the dark or in the light, um, they are super good at killing brine shrimp, which is the typical thing we feed our jellies. So sea monkeys, they, it's an uh. insta-kill situation with these. So independent from the jellyfish, to be released in these mucus, these little stinging cell packets can absolutely uh, sting prey, it looks like. Much better, in fact, than just mucus itself. When brine shrimp were put in with just mucus itself, what was assumed that there was all these stinging cells in the mucus, they get stuck, they're unhappy, but they don't die. So okay, I have a couple questions. Yeah. I, I, maybe I, I may have missed it. Well, for, hmm, what do I want to start with? Hmm. All right. <laughs> My first question is, how do you separate the stinging cell balls from the mucus? Yeah, great. So this took a lot of experimentation. This was my job. <laughs> so so this is what I learned. Mucus sifter. From the yes. <laughs> Rob, can you believe grad students could be doing this? <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out to be much easier than we thought. Um, certainly easier than I thought in the beginning. When I, So the way that you get them to release this mucus in the lab is you take little pipettes full of water and you squirt it at them, almost like a little water gun. <laughs> And they get upset and release mucus. Understandable. Um, and then uh, once these, you see that hundreds of these little stinging cells are released, their mucus, weirdly, is actually buoyant. So like I said, these jellies usually hold on to this mucus and then wipe it back over themselves. But if you're, say, like someone is snorkeling or the jellyfish is disturbed, it might release that mucus and then that mucus will just float to the top. This is probably how most people are getting stung because, again, that mm. mucus doesn't reach that far unless you kick it up. So what happens is if you take that mucus away from the jellyfish, put this in a new bowl. Imagine little old me taking this now pipette that I initially used to probably torture these jellies just a little <laughs> bit. Very sadly. They got a lot of food for their, for, <laughs> for their time. And you move the mucus into this new bowl. And while I was trying to figure out what to, how to separate these things, these um, casiosomes, because they move actually fall to the bottom. They're not uh, neutrally oh, buoyant. Nice. So mm. the mucus stays on the top and the stinging cells will end up eventually coming to the bottom. So in about 15 minutes, you can collect hundreds of these, mm. especially if you remove the mucus from the top um, and then pipette them out. Yeah. So that ended up being much more convenient. Good business model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my other question was, and I, this is where I, I can't tell if I, I miss this or not. What is the purpose of the, was it you say algae that was inside the Casio? Yeah, the Casiosomes. Casiosomes. <laughs> we were going to call them Casiodomes, but that, uh, it, didn't, it didn't make it the review, our, our um, intense review panel. So <laughs> uh, that is a great question and one we actually proposed in the paper. So we tried to use some chemicals that block photosynthesis because our initial idea was maybe this is how they're getting their power. Mm. for at least the cilia so that had been my um when i was working on them that had also been kind of uh the reason i did a light dark experiment so one we wanted to see how long these things kept moving for but i thought let's add a little extra we'll put some of these in dark completely in theory those would if the um algae are doing something they might move or they might stop moving sooner um and then kept the rest in natural light and then some in some artificial tank light Made no difference. Um, they lasted 10 days, no matter what. And then we did apply some drugs as well to try and block photosynthesis. Um, but that was kind of ad hoc right at the end for a lot of this. Um, but it didn't seem to have any effect. So no idea. I, I love the idea of like the, the jelly stays there, but it sends out these little things to like wreak havoc. 
I know. I think that's so awesome. And think, just think of like hundreds of these jellies and then you kick up all this mucus and you kick up all this stuff. So there, there's a kicker here since this is the venom episode. Ooh, I wanted yeah. to talk about kind of the venom, uh, a little bit of venom stuff that went with this. So my, um, my dissertation research is looking at how um, certain jellyfish venoms, mostly um, these jellies called hydrozoans, um, which there's about 3000 species, not super well uh, studied except for hydra which is a common model animal um that's pretty much it um portuguese manivore uh, and all siphonophores are within this group too so i study um not only what their venoms look like which is difficult to do um at least for jellies where we have almost zero information and we can't milk their venom like you might be able to with these larger jellyfish um but the other part is that i'm trying to match uh, what the functional and ecological roles of those venoms might be and how that ties into these different um, kind of roles jellyfish play in the environment. So the big one for me is jellyfish go through this polyp stage. So a polyp is um, very tiny, usually a few millimeters or less, um, stay stuck to the bottom, and almost all jellyfish go through this stage. Uh, and they can be colonial and they produce asexually. So there's a lot of kind of weird uh, biological things that they're doing that a jellyfish, which is mostly in the um, swimming around, has a different set of predators, is eating different things and is, rep- and is um, sexually reproductive. A lot of different energy constraints is seeing how the, the venoms between these two things is different. Uh, the other thing I do is look at um, uh, certain... Uh, venom families and try and do a kind of evolutionary molecular evolutionary analysis so that's what i'm doing right now and actually what um we're working on now is this toxin family um they're called jellyfish toxins they've also been called catx toxins i know right i was i was waiting for it um they've been given this 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 non-creative name um i can explain a little bit why so they're primarily found in box jellyfish. So box jellyfish are the ones that can really hurt you. So the mm. original jellyfish toxins were found in three different species of box jellyfish that have known medical relevance. They'll send you to the hospital and otherwise cause a lot of pain. Many of these jellyfish toxins were found in uh, the Australian box jellyfish, which is renowned as the most venomous animal on the planet. Um, two meters of tentacle will kill you in two to three minutes from cardiac arrest. Mm. Uh, yeah. And the most dominant toxins in there are these jellyfish toxins. So one of them, uh, we were talking about like cells, uh, venoms that attack specific cells. One of them goes for cardiac cells, punches holes through them. So these are all pore forming. So just punches a hole into them. <laughs> the others are hemolytic. They're going to punch your blood cells. Oh, man. So they're going to leak all that wonderful stuff from the cells into your body as well as destroying those cells. Um, and there's quite and a number of them. So, so yeah, so that, that's the other part basically is that I'm looking at these jellyfish toxins because we've ended up finding these in non-painful um, and otherwise harmless species. So I'm trying to understand kind of the evolutionary history of these um, uh, and why is it that box jellyfish seem to have really taken hold of these toxins and really gone for it in a way that's very dangerous for people but as part of that so the the bit out of this um project on cassiosomes that uh i am uh, very happy with is that we actually um looked at jellyfish toxins that we have found in upside down jellyfish so in a previous project 
I actually found um, two of these jellyfish toxins in upside down jellyfish, which again, don't uh, cause some irritation, but otherwise are not very painful or harmful. Um, we ended up finding a third and we decided to do some proteomics on cassiosomes and the structures that hold cassiosomes. And we found all three, uh, toxins with, um, two of them with a pretty high degree of confidence. So that is awesome. That also tells me, uh, that these toxins are in this specific type of stinging cell. Unclear if it's in the other types, and that's something else I'm interested in is do different stinging cell types with different levels of barbs and spines and are distributed over different parts of the body, are those venoms different? Because that would be evolutionarily an easy way to kind of save your energy and just put venom, certain venoms where you need it, certain toxins where you need it at least. Uh, Other than the proteomics, which is um, one of the better ways to certainly look for these, the other thing we did, which I think is kind of funny, is that... um, So remember I said that uh, in the 1900s, a really famous uh, jellyfish biologist said these couldn't possibly be from jellyfish. These must be parasitic uh, things. So when we were thinking about other stuff to do with this paper after we'd done like a lot of microscopy, taken a lot of pictures, observed them for a long time, we thought, well, let's make a two for one deal. Let's show that these are these things, which you can see on the jellyfish are obviously from the jellyfish just to show that we did. And, um, let's see how close these jellyfish toxins are in the upside down jellyfish to these other kinds of uh, these other species that we know have these jellyfish toxins. So we did something slightly unconventional, um, but we made it through review. So clearly it was semi, semi accepted (laughs) is we actually did a, um, real-time PCR experiment. So we essentially made these little, um, uh, if you're unfamiliar with uh, PCR, we made these targets for this specific kind of toxin uh, uh, from the upside down jellyfish. And using these targets, we could um, kind of mix up tissues or bits of the upside down jellyfish with this target, put it into a machine, and that machine will tell us, did it find anything that matches this target or not? So we did this with the, um, for one of these uh, upside down jellyfish, upside down jellyfish, jellyfish toxins, if you will, (laughs) and uh, two other species. So moon jellyfish, which um, at least in polyps, we think that they have uh, two of these jellyfish toxins. Again, not really harmful. And then this box jellyfish that's found all over the world um, called Alatina um, or the angel wing box jellyfish does cause problems. Um, and has uh, at least a few of these jellyfish toxins as well. And so when we did, um, what we were expecting at least was that we can show for sure, because this toxin is an upside down jellyfish, we can at least say that this is these cassiosomes as our target are from the upside down jellyfish. And then we were just curious how similar uh, the others would be. And weirdly, um, the, the PCR showed that both the jellyfish toxins, at least we think, are in moon jellyfish and this um, angel wing box jellyfish are not at all similar. Got a very weak hit. Hmm. So that means that this, uh, at least these jellyfish toxins, which we found proteo- proteins evidence for, are so different from these other two toxins um, that maybe, even though we think they're poor forming toxins, maybe they have a whole other kind of target. Hmm. They're not going for your heart or your blood cells, which would make sense. They're, they don't eat fish. 
um, and ten, tended to deter fish. So this is kind of a um, something that I'm working on right now. So that was the piece I was very excited for because we got um, this two for one deal of of so of <laughs> gently saying this um, this very famous researcher was wrong <laughs> in a very very <laughs> gentle way. Um, and uh, some evidence, at least for, for my thesis, which this was during my first year of my PhD. So this, that, that was very comforting that I might have more to look at later Yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. going through these. Uh, but I just think that's incredible that these otherwise totally dangerous toxins are in these little stinging cell packets that are released <laughs> in mucus by this jellyfish that doesn't even really swim all that much it's just all kind of a wild story wow, absolutely cool. um and actually i had jumping off of this too one question about something you mentioned earlier so in terms of like sea anemone having similar at least similar packets um in their digestive systems yeah yeah do those like in terms of like the the toxin content in terms of what you were looking at is that oh. similar at all between or oh no you have asked something that i should have done i so they <laughs> Wow. Um, so, so, okay. I can't, I can recover this. So they did do, um, look at the genes expressed in nematosomes versus all the rest of the tissues. Um, what I should have done is use that and search for toxins myself. Probably would have been a good thing, but the, um, nematostella. So this is a, um, sea anemone that actually burrows into the sediment and just leaves its tentacles out in the open. Uh, like out mm. a little bit and just waits for stuff to come to it. And if it doesn't get food for six months, eight months, 10 months, it's not happy, but it can. Um, wow. And if, if another jellyfish kind of swims over it, cool. That's a snack for it, uh, apparently. So so they're they're very weird and they're found all over. Um, so the, the, um, the reason I'm saying this is those nematosomes, if they're mostly kind of in their gut, they're not experiencing kind of the same pressures in terms of, catching food or deterring predators in some way. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would assume the venom content is very different. Uh, they're also a little bit smaller. If I remember like fewer stinging cells and more kind of like, um, extra gloopy bits <laughs> to hold it together. <laughs> and the experiments that they did with brine shrimp were very similar to ours though, was that brine shrimp are impeded and not killed as fast as ours. I think at least anecdotally, but, they're, they're potent enough that they're doing something in the brine shrimp, at least. But it could be they're also paralyzing and digesting and not killing since gotcha. it's in the gut. That's a in good question. In terms of the upside-down jellies, like, do you see mm-hmm. that um, the brine fish also kind of begin to get digested, like, when they come into contact with the oh, um, or is it oh, just when purely they... to kill them? Yeah, so we we thought about this too. Um, it, they just kill them, and in fact, they keep they move they keep moving, and it almost it, this is not what they're doing, but it seems like they're trying to shake it off. <laughs> it's like this is an impediment to them that they now have this dead <laughs> shrimp attached to them. And they're like, why is this happening? And they just go in circles and circles and circles until they just stop moving. And I I think they like expend all this energy because they they do move fairly constantly but slowly. Mm. Um. We did try to, so we tried to see if they were phototaxic or at least move towards light for some reason, completely mm. random. Mm. And then we tried to also put like brine shrimp and crushed up brine shrimp on one side to see if they move towards that. Totally random. So they're not like, 
they're not like a, a, or they don't seem to have anything that they're going towards. They don't have a target. They don't have a motive. They're not good they're at just decisions. Like there. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're just kind of been thrown out there. Um, and to at least that we could find, there's nothing um, biologically, at least that they seem to go towards. And again, it, this might just be me. I also see personality in my jellyfish. They just seem surprised when they sting something. Really, like every time they hit him, like how'd that get there? <laughs> that was moving very quickly. Stop. And then try and like shake it off a bit. So um, it's like a it's like what is it like cats if they have like something on their paw? They're like yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's so similar. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you'll. I've even seen too, and this is incidental. Is that if they stick to a brine shrimp, um, and they somehow manage to like roll around. All the stinging cells will fire kind of along in a line, and then the cassiosome will just be off, hmm. um, having lost hmm. most of its materials, too. So they can detach, eventually, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, it's a very weird thing. And just also crazy that no one looked at the mucus of these things. Apparently long enough to notice stinging cell balls in there essentially that actually this there's crazier things and i will say the crazier <laughs> thing is that if you look on these je- so we're trying to figure out where are these things coming from on the jellyfish we don't appear to see any of these white bumpy marks on here quite literally i mean i can show you a picture of it but that that will not do well for this audience i encourage you to go <laughs> go google a picture of an upside down jellyfish and you will see they have these clubs like kind of immersed around their tentacles um, they, they look like clubs with a little divot on the top, like a spoon almost. Within that spoon, you might notice a white bumpy mass. Those would be 30 to 100 cassiosomes just embedded in these things that are very visible. <laughs> I look at pictures of them and say, there they are. That is the cassiosome nest, as we called them. <laughs> and I don't, th- there were even reports, at least for some, that if a fish or something came by uh, the upside down jellyfish, they would take these clubs and smack it onto the fish like, as a weapon <laughs> to get these cassiosomes to go away. There, there is a report like a in 2014 like, of this. Yeah. It's just like, go, stop. And, and I just, it boggles the mind. But I, they had a lot of things going on, I'm sure, when they were looking at the upside down um. jellyfish for many other reasons. Yeah. But. Well, as a lung person, I think we can both agree that there is magic in the mucus. (laughs) (laughs) So much magic in this mucus. Yeah. All right. Now it is time for our Venom quiz. uh, As our show ends with a quiz that is, quote, loosely inspired by the theme, we are generally going to have a quiz about venomous animals. Not always directly about, like, name the venomous animal, um, but sometimes... Sometimes, a lot of the time. Um, so, question number one. Uh, Anna, do you forgive Rob uh, for his opinions <laughs> on Jonefish? <laughs> I, I forgive Rob for his for his opinions, not facts, on Jellyfish. Yes. <laughs> he has been rehabilitated. Um, okay, good. I just wanted to get that out of the way. It's been really awkward in here. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, real question one. Real question one. What rock star who wrote the song that has been played more times on the radio than any other, got their nickname because they used to wear a sweater with horizontal black and yellow stripes on stage. Rockstar. Oh, is it? Is it not Sting? The answer is Sting. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yes, the answer was Sting. Um, so when he was a school teacher in the 70s, he would play in a jazz band at night, and he would often wear this black and yellow hoodie that people basically said made him look like a wasp. Um, and then they just started calling him Sting. Do y'all know what his real name is? Um, Gordon uh, Sumner. That's exactly right. Wow. And I give you many points for that, because Sting doesn't even know what his real name is. Um, he said in a 1985 documentary to a reporter who called him Gordon, my children call me Sting. My mother calls me Sting. Who is this Gordon character? <laughs> and in a 2011 article in Time Magazine, I was never called Gordon. You could shout Gordon in the street, and I would just move out of your way. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so, also, interestingly, Whoa. Every Breath You Take became the most played song in radio history in 2019, and it took over from the Righteous Brothers song, uh, which is called You've Lost That Loving Feeling, yeah. and not, as some venomologists think, you've lost that loving feeling in your legs due to the venom <laughs> coursing through your bloodstream. It's not that, despite what people in Anna's field are claiming. Oh, we're and very <laughs> confused, people. <laughs> if it were a box jelly and a sting, every breath you take would be like five or ten. <laughs> absolutely very pained five or ten yes all right from one venomous primate to another question two species of the genus nictocebus are the only primates known to have a toxic bite what is the common name for this group of species i i not i i but i know the, the, the cute it's the other one with really big eyes <laughs> oh. um it's the smallest primate in the not, that's the that's the ii with the long oh middle finger. yeah they're i don't i don't know if is, those i don't think those are venomous right. but it's the other one no yeah everyone. i know okay. they got the they got is the pits is it a marmoset or a wombat or a... oh oh it's a primate <laughs> it's hurting they, it's, sorry they got the pits and they, they go like they go like this they put their arms up and everybody thinks it's cute but it's actually a defensive posture and yeah. they're freaked out when you see those cute videos not oh. an orangutan <laughs> oh, I need the helpful. letter, and I. Can... It is. It is a. It's among the cutest. Said, big eyes. eyes. So it's one cute. of those really cute, like Not a... social media viral primates. Oh, <laughs> capuchins. No. I'm, just, I'm just okay. I'm throwing see. darts. Oh, those are little guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna slowly say it, and I think Anna's gonna get it. So I'm just gonna very slowly. I'm gonna draw out the answer, and we'll see where she jumps in. Forward. Ready? Slow... Loris. Yes. <laughs> the slow Loris. Loris. What? <laughs> so I feel like we've all seen those videos uh, of the adorable <sighs> slow, slow Loris um, with its arms like raised up in the air, yes. like it's doing a big yawn or something. And everybody's like, uh. this is the cutest thing in the world. This is actually its defensive posture. Um, and the reason, uh, it, one of the reasons it does that is to put its... Um, it's basically gland that produces a toxin within like licking range. I, I, that's why I understand it. And what they do, I think it's actually in their elbow. I've heard, I've definitely heard people say it's the armpit, but I saw pictures of it. It's in the, oh, the it's, yeah. side of the elbow. Yeah. Um, and they lick that, the, the secretions from that gland. And then that toxin goes into like their mouth and it gets into something called their tooth comb, which is a specialized row sense. of incisors that they, both used to groom themselves and to inject venom. So whether this the slow loris actually qualifies as venomous is apparently depends on how strict you are with the term and is not. Yeah, th itself. this was a hot debate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sure. Along with ticks and vampire bats, this is a hot debate. 
Yeah. Are wow. these venomous? Echoing what Anna said about this being a hot debate, I just want to read a quote or one particular re- of a review of this this conundrum uh, said that it was in quote the twilight zone of toxicology labeling. Um, and I, I was going to ask Anna, do you have a position on this that you'd like to stake publicly? Oh, uh, uh, oh, that I would like to stake publicly. <laughs> um, I say yes. Uh, and the reason I say yes, so part of the, the difference between venom and poison, poison is, it has to be ingested or absorbed. Uh, venom is injected by some means, but there's also um, some nuance in actually what the composition of this particular thing is. So poisons tend to be very simple or just one thing. Venoms are a bunch of different things and they will not work unless they are injected. So if a slow loris is biting you, I would call that venom because it's putting this these things into your body to do a bad thing. What what mm. I understood about the counter argument was that mm. venom, like a, a cor- you know, I just learned about this today, but you know, I'm just, just saying. <laughs> well, papers I read basically said that venoms typically have a dedicated envenomation like apparatus that is connected to the gland that produces the venom. Uh-huh. That's that was what they were being sort of I pedantic see. about, um, and that's why they were saying it like really kind of is but not the same as sort of passively you know poisoning like frogs like exuding it and you touching it or something um it's sort of in this middle ground yeah there's the other middle ground of people like the the um other kind of uh probably poster child for this this twilight zone are spitting cobras because Mm. spitting that venom is that venom because they're they're um, re- releasing this venom, at least it was venom, but now it's acting in a way where it's being absorbed or um, not really ingested unless their aim is very good, I guess. But it's it, <laughs> are it's, they going for like the eyes or something? Where yeah, it's, sort of could... it, it's going. It, they're going for so in maybe some way, but there's no injection. So um, there was a a name for actively delivered poisons, which I think was called toxigens. Hmm. But I think that still the somehow the slow loris is somehow in the twilight zone of that twilight zone because it's just so <laughs> odd what they do. Um, but I'm I really was... glad. I'm really <laughs> glad that you feel that way. I was actually expecting you to not go with that because you study jellyfish and they're like have such amazing exquisite apparatus oh. for like injecting. You're going to be like, no, it better have cool floaty algae cells. <laughs> like, no, what? we 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 can't be Oz cool not everyone can be as cool as a jellyfish i understand and that's fine i'm not going to inhibit other other (laughs) venomous animals from (laughs) not not to belabor this question but like if you sneeze your mucus out is it that different than a spinning cobra but the cells are the cells are yeah so the so this is the weird part too is that (laughs) actually so there's there's okay there's a kind of third criteria and this Puts it with with stinging cell, like kind of puts it in the stinging cell issue that I think you're getting at too, Rob, is that the other thing that's pretty common is that poisons are acquired by something in your diet or something you sequester otherwise. You don't often make it yourself. Venom Mm. has a metabolic cost that you are producing it. You have the genes for it. Um, Jellyfish... It's unclear, actually, this is another thing that is being studied, is it's unclear is when they're making the stinging cells, if their venoms are being made outside the stinging cell, fully folded up and then imported in, or if somehow all that's happening in the stinging cell, um, because it's really hard to capture that moment, I guess. 
Um, but they definitely have genes for venoms. But I do see okay. your point. Stinging cells are semi-independent, which is mm-hmm. kind of weird um, and very different from most other venomous things. I would agree. It's, it's an obscure system. But that is another criteria. And so I believe the slow mm. loris does make this itself, but I'm not sure. So that might sway my opinion. Wow. I, I think so. And I can tell you a little more about it. Um, uh, it's a review called Venomous Animals, a review in the journal Toxicon. And the quote here, which I, I think is amazing, <laughs> is uh, Nick DeCebus bites have a wide variety of effects on humans from none to death. <laughs> Good scale. <laughs> That's all of the possible <laughs> reactions. Yeah. That, that is wonderful. Um, and speaking of but which, I, uh, do you guys want to go to Toxicon with me next year? I'm going to dress up as oh, a yeah. snail. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see uh, all those TED toxins. <laughs> That's the new subtitle for my, my thesis defense. TED toxins. The TED toxins. Really yeah. That's free to use. All yours. Um, yeah, I'll just get like a little acknowledgement in your thesis. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that would be amazing. I'd be so proud. Maybe maybe like fifth author if there's not <laughs> yeah, <anything>. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, speaking of noxious armpits and foul smelling glands, reversal of puberty has occasionally been observed in the bites from what venomous animal? Oh. Wait, so the, the, the victim of the bite experienced reversal of puberty. It's been observed due to, due to the bites from what kind of venomous animal? Wow. Okay. Because I know you. jellyfish go back to polyp phase, which is a sort of reversal Ooh. of puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll accept it. <laughs> I'm asking broadly, like what, what kind of venomous animal, not the species name. Oh, I, I mean, I have an insect of some sort. No, I have no idea. Insect sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. Uh, the answer is, in fact, snake. Ooh. Um, specifically, this was kind of a toss-up. You just had to had to have read <laughs> these, like, you know, pop psychom articles. Um, specifically, <laughs> uh, this is the snake known as the Russell's viper or yeah. Chandrabora in Bengali. Oh. Um, and what it really does okay. is cause blood clotting all over the place. Uh, and according to a paper in the Lancet, basically, according to this paper in the Lancet, about thirty percent of people who survived had significant damage to the pituitary gland, which resulted in hyperpituitarism. Mm-hmm which can result in these big reductions in the amount of hormones being released, um, which just about every news organization ran with as reversal of puberty. Um, oh and it was really interesting because I, I had heard that and I was like, oh, mm. what an interesting fact for the Venomology quiz. And then I was I was like reading, there's like a million like IO9 and like, you know, I guess Gizmodo and then like mm. uh, Mental Floss and like those kind of websites. All oh, of them okay. like say reversal of puberty and blah, blah, blah. And uh, they cite this like Lancet paper uh, and no, not even Wikipedia uses those exact words. Um, mm. But there are certain features of it that, like, because of the hormonal imbalance, can. It's not a ridiculous way to describe it, but it's not really what happens. Wow. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to imagine, like, what kind of toxin would acutely just, like. <laughs> yeah. Like, How does this. Yes, it's not. It's. I was really interested. Like even too, like a re- hormone antagonist would not. Totally. <laughs> I was really, really interested to see, find out. Like, oh, is it like it just goes straight for the pituitary gland? But no, it really is yeah. just like there's like ble- basically cause like hemorrhaging in the pituitary gland among many other places. But that has like more long lasting effects if you survive. Um, <laughs> all right. So question four. Enough about snake bites. What kind of venomous animal is it said that Cleopatra used in order to end her own life? It's an asp, right? Which is a snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a yeah. snake. It was a trick. Okay, you, like, saw, <laughs> you saw through my tricky trick. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I was, oh, wow. I was being mischievous, <laughs> and you got right to the point. Um, spe- specifically an asp, uh, if you believe Plutarch like Shakespeare did. Um, but the answer is probably didn't even happen. Um, we just really don't know. Like, even mm. Plutarch was writing much, much later. Um, but German historian Christopher Schaefer proposed that in, uh, instead of an asp, she actually ingested a fatal mix of hemlock, wolfsbane, and opium. Um, so, yeah, it's an asp, sort of. Question five. The Iberian-ribbed newt defends against predators by injecting them with a toxin, but not with their teeth or claws. What do they use instead? It's their ribs! It's so weird and gross! <laughs> the answer is their ribs. Exactly right. I was reading about it earlier, and I actually almost mentioned it in my fact, so that was very Glad lucky. Glad you didn't. <laughs> I basically just decided if ever, any fact ever gets, like, any, any of my quiz questions ever gets mentioned, I'm just going to read it like... Question five. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's just hurry this up. (laughs) I believe it's the ribs. (laughs) Um, Yes, but you were absolutely right. So there are little spots all along its body where the newt, this particular newt, can extrude its like sharp, pointy little ribs. uh, And it picks up toxins secreted by glands on its body along the way, which is kind of similar to our discussion earlier, thereby impaling and envenomating the predator. And something else really interesting is basically they, they puncture the skin. And something really interesting about them is how they they have like an inc- apparently an incredibly sophisticated immune system to be able to like prevent infection from these constant like wounding through like the tubercles like the mm. little spots that they go through. Uh, and apparently it's a really interesting uh, field of study. Um, so question six: Some species of what venomous spider, commonly found in homes, have utricating hairs that they use as throwing darts against predators? Um, tarantulas do that. I think some of them do. I guess commonly found in homes as in weird pet well, yeah, or as, a, yeah, as yeah. like a pest. <laughs> that was my, I was, that's, that's an asterisk. Pets or pets. Like yeah. um, um, they're not those hmm. cute little jumping spiders, are they? I don't think jumping spiders do. This is sad. A friend of mine studies spider venoms, and I should know this. I, I always think of Black Widow because that's just the easy, like, deadly one, but... So are brown recluses. Those brown guys, recluses are 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 fuzzier. Yeah. <laughs> Higher on the cute they, scale. <laughs> I think they bite though. They, actually, I think too. They're one of those examples of like a venom that also like sort of prevents wound healing and like. The yeah, they're, it's extremely dermonecrotic. It just yeah. it like waste. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> Very gnarly pictures. <laughs> Look them up if you dare. Um. Hmm. So, tarantula? Is that... Final answer, tarantula? Commonly found in homes is really throwing me with this. I think it's... Like, what other spider would... Is, like, a house spider? No, I'm trying to think of a common house spider. spider. I think, yeah, like you said it, what you need to think about is pest or pets. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a two-letter swap. Yeah. Very, very important. (laughs) I'm fine with tarantulas. Yeah. Going tarantula? I am. Oh, guys, you're right. Yay. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Commonly found in homes was a deliberate uh. <laughs> attempt to be both truthful, give a hint that was cryptic, but also try to throw you off. But you did great. There's a specific reason that I, I asked this question. So eutricating hairs are not the venomous part. Yeah. But they are really nice. interesting. So they apparently all... All or most tarantulas, I'm not really sure what the exact number is, are venomous, but they don't really have a bite that's like that much to worry about. But they do have the this little patch of what are known as eutricating hairs. They're not really hairs. There's another. They're also called eutricating spines. Um, that when they are in danger, 
when they're they're like um they will turn toward the attacker and quote briskly rub their hind legs against the opisthosoma and that thereby like shoots the urtricating hairs in the direction of the enemy and this like cloud of bristles basically can get into like eyes and mouth and mucous membranes and various things and of small mammals can like cause like bleeding and end up being fatal for humans it can be really really irritating um not venomous but a venomous animal uh and the reason i wanted to ask about that is because of an interesting indirect but etymological connection to jellyfish which is that uh these urtican hairs so the the root of that means nettle so it's urtica means nettle like the sea nettle ah. jellyfish probably through the plant which is probably what the jellyfish is named after as well um i think but I... urticaria is also the medical term for hives if Ooh. i recall correctly yes probably probably because like they're upraised welts and so also resemble mm. yeah interesting yeah. um but i you know, thought you might enjoy that i do yeah. i do that's pretty weird <laughs> yeah um so question number seven, what is the most venomous mammal? Platypus. Slam dunk. Platypus. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Mic drop. They're Terrifying. shockingly dangerous. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I had known that they had, they were venom. I knew this sort of like fact. I was like, oh, what a quirky fact of the platypus. I have no idea how hardcore their venom is. Um, and it, it, they're on the basically on the backs of their legs sort of it's like a heel spur basically mm. um and so there's a pair of short spurs that each are hooked up to its own venom gland so nobody's disputing the venom no. <laughs> apparatus here um so <laughs> it's it's pretty rare that people are you know in this case they're called being spurred by a platypus um but of those who have lived um which are usually fishermen who are trying you know kindly to free platypuses from their nets that they've been trapped in uh who've gotten like stung report quote pain strong enough to induce vomiting which can persist for days weeks or even months oh the pain God. is resistant to morphine and oh, other no. pain-killing drugs and anesthesia of the main nerve from the spur site is often the only way to relieve the patient's suffering a witness to one of the first recorded platypus spurrings uh this is ww spicer in 1876 wrote the pain was intense and almost paralyzing, but for the administration of small doses of brandy, he would have fainted on the spot. As it was, it was an hour, it was a half an hour before he could stand without support. By that time, the arm was swollen to the shoulder and quite useless, and the pain in the hand was very severe. Wow. And I also mentioned, I sort of mentioned this before, that pain can last up to months, but also hyperalgesia, um, sort of like, uh, you know excessive reactions to normally non-noxious stimuli um, can last for months, which is even more than just the sting itself, but it's just like your arm becomes extraordinarily sensitive to even just like being brushed, uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, I, I wonder how this all fits into, and in a previous episode, we talked about for insects, the Schmidt pain index scale for like bite mm. sting pain. Mm. Like mm. it was like, what, one to four? Like, what is yeah. this? This sounds like way worse than the worst thing we read about. Um, I just listened to a podcast on the Schmidt scale. And I think also from what I know of flat, well, I don't, are there more facts you want to share about the platypus? Cause I got something I'm done. that you is go. my favorite fact about platypus venom is that only the males have these spurs. Mm. The females don't. And the reason the males have these is to fight other males yeah. for females. Oh, okay, that's fine. I have to say, this is originally <laughs> where I had my toxin masculinity joke. <laughs> <laughs> well. And then our 
platypus reactions to this toxin as extreme as human reactions? Because I feel like that would be like detrimental so, to this issue. Yeah. So the this is what I tell people, and this is I'm pretty sure is part of the reasoning that it's so bad for us, is because the target the this venom is not meant to kill. That would de- kind of defeat the purpose. That would lower the mm-hmm. the population. So it's yeah. only meant to cause such extreme pain that the male cannot physically go and mate with the female so it's now it gets the venom is just pain and i guess all all these other kinds of sensitivity all this makes sense for if you don't want that male to compete with you and then it'll do exactly the same thing for people but do they ever just like all the males that are competing all just go like all at once and they're just like (laughs) And the I female think... just was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't right, again I... next season. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, I would love to know more about uh, like people that take care of platypi and all this stuff. I know they like hold them gently in towels and like have to like hold them to make sure they don't get spurred. I would love to know like what their behavior is with this, but that that is just like the most favorite thing i know is that this is yeah i think some people that are routinely stung by a lot of things um have said that this is the worst pain they've ever felt is if they're wow. stung by some degree by a platypus how do you think relative to irakanji oh i i mean other than the life-threatening aspect, i know that's... well it, so the the someone who has been stung by irakanji i think two or three times and stung by multiple other dangerous jellies and, and snakes and all this reported at 13 out of 10 on the pain scale multiple times and told doctors to, like to, I think essentially that just put me out. I don't want to do wow. this anymore. Oh. But where, whereas, but that venom, that we don't know how that venom works is a crazy mm. thing. So what it's possibly doing is just making all your pain receptors fire at once or short circuiting everything. Whereas the platypus is kind of, like you said, making it more sensitive. I think I read that also. Well, I wasn't, it wasn't as molecularly specific as I'd like, I would have liked it to be, but they said that it, they suspect it acts somewhat like capsaicin, which makes just sort of the, Mm. the sort of pain, like the nociceptor cells basically like more, more electrically active or like more sensitive to like, yeah. No, I'm not just stimuli again. It's the hyperalgesia. I, I'd say it's probably the one of the more comparable stings from what I've heard um, anecdotally, just because of how it I, works. I'm a, I think like in adorable, non-threatening image ratio to dangerousness of the venom, that is probably the highest that I'm aware of. <laughs> I, I, would, I would super agree. <laughs> It's almost like so cute though that you can see that this might be just me scarred now of seeing like cute animals like turn scary because it yeah. kind of feels like it kind of feels right that that it's thing is luring you in. <laughs> That's what's happening. The 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 platypus is a parable about judging a book by its cover. <laughs> That's another T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> platypus equals um, parable. <laughs> all right. Let's move on. Final question <laughs> of the quiz. Oof. Question eight. What kind of venomous animals, when they were brought to space, exhibited, quote, pulsing and movement abnormalities compared to their earthbound counterparts? Oh, well. <laughs> Take it away, Anna. <laughs> Bring us home. <laughs> uh, moon jellyfish, Ephiri. 
<laughs> Moon jellies. jellyfish went to space? I didn't even know that part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even make that connection. Quite fitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a little a little a moon jellies from Very cute. Yeah, from somewhere. Yeah. Aww. Those uh, seasick jellies are very sad. Um I you know, I could explain <laughs> it, but I feel like it'd be better if you did. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, uh, well no, let me I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. Don't I worry. Okay, fi- don't worry. I can fill in if, if you if Sure, please do. Please jump in. So basically, what they were looking at was uh, jellyfish have Mm -hmm. um, what I I think on jellyfish, they're still called otoliths, right? Or no? Yeah. Oh, okay, they are. Yeah, I think so. Um, And they sort of sort of the same general concept as in our inner ear, right? Like, sort of like the movement of this little thing stimulates i'm describing the human inner ear right now so you have to tell me if this jellyfish stuff is right the sort of movement of this little basically little rock uh attached to some cells uh tells the cells which way uh you know your head is moving more or less and in a similar kind of situation that's how jellyfish orient themselves toward or against gravity um and sort of like keep their orientation and what they want nasa wanted to find out purportedly with uh, applications to human spaceflight. Um, but really, I think they just wanted a sense of jellyfish to space because it's funny. <laughs> um, they sent a bunch of sp- uh, jellyfish uh, on, I think it was the Space Shuttle Columbia, and then they, I guess they did this for a while. Um, and by the end of the mission, there were over 60,000 jellies orbiting Earth. And when they brought them back, apparently they had a little bit of trouble you know, basically orienting themselves in space or sort of relative to the direction of gravity when they were sort of raised in microgravity um and i guess anna what i was curious about to ask you is um if when they brought them back to earth they kept them at nidaria 51 oh <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh i wonder what happened to those jellies really it's really I, hard to here raise a jelly. <laughs> <laughs> come on down <laughs> that's also so many jellyfish yeah. oh yeah that's funny I just want to imagine they got put in a tank with ones that had been on Earth, and the Earth jellyfish like wrapped a tentacle around them and like walked them oh, home. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Like, like all those videos of like that. like uh, long distance races where like somebody helps them over the. Yeah. <laughs> Although wrapping a tentacle would probably be very mean, and you would fire all your stinging <laughs> cells. <laughs> And with that, that's our show. A big thank you to our special guest, Anna Klompen. Yeah. <laughs> Anna, where can our listeners learn more about you and your research? Um, I'm on Twitter at Gelatinous Sting and Instagram at Gelatinous Sting. And I have a blog, GelatinousSting.com, that needs to be updated, but you can find this stuff there. <laughs> the brand Very is cool. strong. I like uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the brand is strong with this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you want to learn more about us or get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And individually, we're on social media. I'm at Arcs and Sciences, M. At underscore E M Costa. And Rob. At Sweater Vest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Noah Guyverson, Rob Frawley, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyverson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Silver. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs> Love it.